Well, if you will allow me, and I pray that you will, I know it's like talking to a hostile mob, we are going to take a five-week break from Hebrews, but settle down. We're still going to stay on the similar theme. We've been talking about the superiority of our Lord Jesus Christ and how he is the eternal high priest according to the order of what? Melchizedek, yeah, that's right. But as we approach this conference on wokeness in the gospel, felt like it was important that we, as the primary church for this conference, are equipped not only to serve with our hands, but to serve with our hearts. And so I thought we could study it together. I thought we could study what I believe are the two essential things to understanding these philosophies. Our sufficiency in Christ and our identity in Christ. Let me start, if I may, by running some terms by you. Social justice. Critical race theory. Egalitarianism. Intersectionality. Systemic racism. Reparations. Gay Christian. Economic restoration. Defund the police. White supremacy. Whiteness. Equal outcome. Safe spaces. Black Lives Matter. White privilege. Anti-racism. Cancel culture. And I could go on and on. Now, many of these terms are often grouped under the labels like social justice or cultural Marxism or, mo more recently, wokeness. Perhaps you have embraced some of these concepts. Perhaps you're confused by them. Perhaps you want to know more. Really, whether you do or not, it is imperative that we understand not every definition, not every bit of history, not every bit of philosophy, but that we understand how the gospel of Jesus Christ compares to these things. You see, that's the key. My goal here is not to cover all of these concepts or even some that may come down the pike. But I do believe it is my job as your pastor to equip you to understand a more full, complete, in-depth concept of our union with Christ and how he is our all-sufficient Lord and Savior and how our identity is found in him. And if we have that, if we have that discernment, then not only will we be able to recognize that which is contrary to the gospel, but we will be able to engage one another, not in argument, but with the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a tremendous opportunity, a tremendous time in which we live, to be able to defend the faith with a winsome heart and attitude, and yet firmly rooted in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And I think we'd all admit that we need to grow in that area. Even when Aaron was talking this morning about abiding in Christ. It's one of those innocuous things, right? What does it mean to abide? You know, and everyone kind of acts like they know what it means, but really don't. Well, Colossians will help us understand this union, our identity, and his sufficiency in our, as our Savior. So to that end, we're going to spend the next five weeks studying Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 together. Now, I would encourage you, no matter where you stand on this, leave your baggage at the door. Give me this five weeks. I'm not looking for a fight. I'm not looking to get internet famous. Trust me. I do want to equip us. So wrestle not with me. I will make mistakes, okay? I'll say things maybe in such a way that I could have said them better. But wrestle with the Word of God. Struggle well. Leave your expectations at the door. I commit to you that I will not twist the Word of God. I will not make it say something it doesn't. Where I can draw clear parallels, I will do so. But it is important that we understand our tendencies. Not only as men and women, but, but as believers even. 
It is the tendency of man, even regenerate man, to have an anemic anthropology, an anemic understanding of the doctrine of man. We like to think of ourselves as we think of ourselves, not as the Bible describes us, right? Why? Well, we want to assume that our motives and others are 100% heavenly, but it's not because we actually care for that other person, but it's that we care for ourselves. You see, if I apply that standard to the other person, then I'm required to apply that standard to myself, and I don't want to. And so I, I want to help us understand our tendency. And our tendency is to have an unbiblical view of man, where we raise him up higher than he is. And by default, we also lower God. And you will see in each one of these cases, that's exactly what's going on. Satan doesn't use overly deep theology or even trickery. He uses some of the most basic things to lure us, distract us, cause us to drift from the gospel. What are those things? Man's not really that bad and God's not really that holy or powerful. If we can understand that, then we will swallow these truths more readily. And we'll be able to love what God loves and stay away from what God hates. Much of this wokeness philosophy, as my friend Tim Cantrell says, is actually worldliness masked as compassion. You might want to write that down because we're going to refer to it a lot. Worldliness masked as compassion. The title of our conference is The New Moralism That is Incompatible with the Cross. The New Moralism. Let me make one disclaimer as we get going here because I don't want to be misunderstood. Just because many worldly philosophies are incompatible with the cross, it in no way means that we should not desire or as a church take the lead on issues of biblical justice loving our neighbor, showing and demonstrating great compassion, even helping others out of poverty. But just because we do not desire to do it in a worldly fashion, but, we according, but according to the Bible, does not mean we care any less about it. The Bible has a different way of accomplishing those things. That's what we have to realize. So don't hear me saying, no, 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 no. All we want you to do is just understand your theology. That's all you have to do. You don't have to love your neighbor. You don't have to reach out. You don't have to care for others. You don't have to stand in the gap. I'm not saying that at all. In fact, I'm saying the Bible has a better way. A better way that does what is best for another regardless of the cost. That actually focuses on the eternal and then the temporal. So this should not make us less compassionate. This should make us more compassionate, and more effective. We're going to just wade into a couple of verses today. We're not going to go that deep. Uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. It divides into two sections. Number one, set your mind on things above, not below. Set your mind on things above, not below. Number two, because your identity is in Christ, not yourself. Your identity is in Christ, not yourself. Let's start with the first one here. I'll read verses 1 and 2 again. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. You might want to un underline that imperative. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Number two, set your mind on things above. I would encourage you to underline that as well. Not on the things that are on earth. Now, Paul is moving into the practical section here in Colossians, just like Ephesians where he spends the first part on the doctrinal and then the second part on the practical. That's exactly what he's doing here. In fact, they are parallel epistles, sister epistles. But in order to drop into chapter 3, into the practical, where he is instructing the Colossian church to cause their eyes to look upward, to focus on the eternal, the heavenly, rather than the temporal and the earthly, we have to understand the background. We have to understand what's going on. So if you will, look back at chapter 2, 
Verse 23. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are no value against fleshly indulgence. If I could summarize that verse, I would say the Colossian church is being enticed, pressured into a worldly philosophy that has the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion but in fact is completely ineffective against the pursuit of holiness. These Colossian believers are feeling this this desire, this pressure. They're being drawn into this self-made religion. This is not a weaker or a stronger brother thing. These are people in the church that are saying, hey, here's the right way to think. Here's what you need to understand. Here's what will help you grow in holiness. Here's what will make you a varsity Christian, will make you more spiritual. But the fact is, is that this worldly philosophy, whatever it is, though it looks wise, it cannot and does not save. It cannot and does not sanctify. The gospel, on one hand, is built upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. While this worldly philosophy is, watch this, atheistic. Now, this is where I'm wading into the differences. Now, that's a punch in the throat when I say something like that. But I'm in the book of Colossians. I'm talking about this philosophy. And Paul sees it as not just dangerous, but he sees it as damning. Because it is set up alongside the gospel as good as something we should be drawn to, as something that will help us as a better way. And Paul says, no way. It's worldly. In fact, it's atheistic. It is apart from God. So you might ask, well, how is this a damning atheistic religion? Why should I take your word for it? Well, the previous context tells us. Go back a few more verses to verse 13. Paul writes, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. He's taken it out of the way and he's nailed it to the cross. Did you catch those three things? Having forgiven us having canceled out the certificate of debt and having nailed it all to the cross. Can I say it? Christians are forgiven. It is what? Finished. It is finished. Whatever this philosophy is, it is adding to the finished work of Christ and therefore negating it. Can I say that again? It is adding to the cross, the finished work of Christ, and therefore negating the grace of Christ. Things will not commend us to God, meaning good works do not ensure or provide forgiveness in any way. I mean, think about it this way. What is the singular difference between Christianity and all the other world religions? You ever thought about that? I should be able to drop any member of Metro Bible into any country in the world with any pagan religion, and you should be able to ask this question. How can one find forgiveness before a holy God? How can one be made right, find forgiveness before a holy God? And every single other world religion is going to talk about the things they can do to attain a relationship with God, to attain favor with God, to find forgiveness with God, or to become like God, every other world religion. And yet Christianity is God reaching man, because man could not do it. Man did not want to do it, and yet God did it. That's the difference. There is no middle ground 
You're either depending upon yourself to attain to a higher level or relationship with God, or you're depending solely upon God because you are totally depraved, hostile to our Creator, and He makes it right. All other worldly philosophies then assume the goodness of man. There's something within him that can get him there. And in fact, many assume that he, in fact, is able to usher in some sort of a kingdom or a Shangri-La or a better world. Whereas Christianity understands the utter depravity and helplessness of man and relies upon a perfect substitute in our Lord Jesus Christ. So to be fair, we don't know exactly, in fact, we really don't even know remotely what this particular philosophy was about. There's some clues Clearly it had to do with observing days and food rituals, but thousands of pages have been written speculating what this Colossian heresy was about. And we just don't know, but guess what? It really doesn't make a difference because there's some commonalities that will make the truth we read here timeless and applicable for today. David Garland makes several observations about what we do know about this worldly philosophy. Now, tell me if these don't sound vaguely familiar. Number one, it judges, excludes, or disqualifies other persons according to arbitrary human criteria. It engenders religious tyranny over people based upon arbitrary human criteria. It panders to pride and egocentrism and results in puffing up and arrogance. Number four, it attaches too much importance on what is ephemeral or perishable, things that will pass away. Five, it cuts persons off from Christ by substituting something else for a deep personal relationship with Christ. Its wisdom focuses on fulfilling the self rather than giving one's life to God and for others. Finally, it, it places limits or rejects the efficacy of Christ's work in every area of life, suggesting that it is inadequate or not enough. Does that sound remotely familiar? It's no coincidence. It's not like this guy wrote this commentary yesterday. Do you know when it was written? 23 years ago. But see, he doesn't have to understand the next worldly philosophy. He doesn't have to understand critical race theory or wokeism or social justice. Or 15 years ago, he doesn't have to understand the emergent church. Or 25 years ago, he doesn't have to understand cheap grace. Because Satan has nothing new under the sun. He takes old heresies, he repackages them, and he puts them out for the spring lineup. It's just like fashion, you know? There ain't nothing new. Wide ties are coming back, right? That's exactly what he does. Now, understanding that, that worldly philosophy plays the same tune over and over. Man's basically good, Christ is not sufficient, and you need to do this in order to attain to a higher level. And if you don't, I'm going to stand in judgment over you. Which, by the way, just side note here, isn't it interesting that Matthew 7.1 used to be a pagan's favorite verse. Judge not, lest you be judged. And now, Christians, quote-unquote, are using this thing like crazy to stand in judgment over other people's moralism, works, philosophy, etc. That was for free. Look, look at verse, uh, verse 1 again. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... Literally, since you have been raised up with Christ. Don't overlook the weightiness of this phrase. Okay? Because this is the warp and the woof of what I want to preach. It makes no I want us to be able to pull this sermon out 20 years from now with the next philosophy coming down the pike and have it be just as applicable. Because here's where it counts. Since you have been raised up with Christ... Boy, that's got, a, that's got a, a strong meaning. Turn, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 2. 
to Paul's sister epistle, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, turn back two books to chapter 2, verse 1. And let's talk about the gospel. Let's talk about the pure, unfiltered gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 1. And you were sickly in your trespasses and sins. Is that what it says? It says you were dead. I think it was Billy Graham one time that said, you know, that uh, witnessing is like throwing people a, 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 a lifesaver, a floaty, because they're drowning. And someone corrected him and said, no, they're at the bottom of the ocean. We were dead. Dead men do not respond. That's why salvation is holy of God. We were not seeking him. In which you formerly walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who's that? Satan, of the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, too, we all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. You want to know why the Bible is true? Because there's no human that would ever write that about himself. Think about this. This is the first part of the gospel. This is the bad news. You were dead. You were hostile. You did not seek God. You indulged the desires of your flesh. You were under the influence and the power of the prince of the power of the air, Satan. And you were by nature a child of wrath. You know, one of the biggest problems with wokeism is that this is not coming from liberal Methodist churches out there or Unitarian churches. Do you know who was promoting this the most? The Young Reformed Movement. The Young Reformed, Restless and Reformed, however you want to say it, movement that, that came about about 15 years ago that has been such a blessing to evangelicalism that has recaptured and highlighted the doctrines of grace, the sovereignty and holiness of God, the depravity of man, repentance and faith as a response to Christ's work on the cross. These guys are the ones that are being duped the most by this worldly philosophy. And it breaks my heart because they're friends of mine. These guys are smart, they are degreed, they have amazing ministries, and for whatever reason, this is a deluding influence that has come upon them. Now what's interesting about that, if you don't understand what I mean by Reformed theology, Reformed theology talks about the doctrines of grace. What is the first doctrine of grace? Total depravity. It is the very doctrine upon which all the other ones stand or fall. What is the primary one that is being punted with this worldly philosophy? Total depravity. The guys that claim to understand and believe a healthy biblical anthropology of man are the ones that are punting it in favor of this woke theology. Now that scares me to death because I don't stand in judgment over them. It scares me. How is this possible? How are guys that have mentored me falling prey to this? Why? Well, we're going to discuss a lot of that in the coming weeks, but the first thing we need to do is understand how dangerous it is. When you lose total depravity, then you start to believe that man is basically good. You start to expect, watch this, unregenerate culture to behave like believers. Think about that concept. You don't have to be a deep theologian to realize how ridiculous that is. That I'm expecting unregenerate culture, unbelieving culture, to act like Christians. So much so that I'm willing to enforce it with not just laws, but peer pressure and cancel culture. Now, understanding what I know about the Bible, why would I expect totally depraved people to behave like anything else other than totally depraved people? Paul Washer says the biggest problem is that they're fake Calvinists. They don't really believe 
the first base in the doctrines of grace. Scripture is clear. It is clear that we cannot redeem culture because culture is not a person to be redeemed. Salvation has come to those who repent and believe, to individuals. The only way we, we redeem culture, quote-unquote, is by redeeming one soul at a time. We cannot redeem a mass of people because those people don't have a collective soul. And the fact is, is that understanding total depravity is essential to the good news of Jesus Christ because all of us stand guilty at the foot of the cross. No one is without sin. Paul was a murderer, for goodness sakes. All of us are guilty for our own sin and deserve to spend eternity paying for it. But we are guilty of our own sin, not the specific sins of our fathers. God is our judge. And forgiveness is found at the cross, not through penance and not through reparations, but through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 4 in Ephesians chapter 2. You know I love this verse because I quote it all the time. But God, being rich in His mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive. Even when we were at the bottom of the ocean, He saved us. He made us alive, for by grace you have been saved. And what's that phrase? Raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Raised us up with Him. Seated us with Him. Now, we've been in Hebrews, we should recognize that, right? Seated at the right hand of God, that's Psalm 110. That's Colossians again, chapter 3. And here it's in Ephesians 2. We have been raised up with him. He is seated at the right hand of God. Think about that imagery. Because we're still here on earth, we're not in heaven. We're not, we're not seated next to God the Father. I mean, what does this mean? It's kind of hard, isn't it? Well, we're going to understand more of it in Colossians 3. But, but what it means is, first of all, Christ is seated at the right hand of God. It is finished. High priests don't sit down. But they sit down only when it is completed and there is no more sacrifice to be offered. Second of all, the right hand, Benjamin, son of my right hand, it is a place of honor. It is a place of authority. Psalm 110 says, sit here until I make Thy enemies a footstool for thy feet. The sacrificial work on the cross is completed. The price has been paid. And we have union with Christ. Our lives are wrapped up in His. Therefore, when God the Father sees us, He sees Jesus Christ. We are no longer, as Romans 6 says, a slave to sin. We're a slave to righteousness, yea, sons of the King. Our life and Christ's life are knit together. They are in union. We can't exactly see it all now, but it is assured. It is a done deal. Now turn back to Colossians chapter 2. Understanding this worldly philosophy as best we can and understanding the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ Man's total depravity, God's wonderful sovereignty, His holiness, what Christ did on the cross, what has been accomplished, and now we are inextricably linked with the King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at chapter 2, verse 16. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. We have one judge, that is God. And Jesus Christ took that judgment on his shoulders. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you starting to see a picture of this, this wokeism and the danger? The affront it is to the gospel? Please hear me out. I'm not saying that Christians don't exhort and confront one another on sin and call to repentance. Absolutely we do. But on those arbitrary good works and philosophies and wisdoms that say, if you do this, you will attain to a higher level. If you do this, it will make you a more spiritual Christian. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, get away. We all stand naked and broken at the foot of the cross. Christians are forgiven. That judgment is paid. And sadly, with wokeness, we become judge over one another. And the means of forgiveness becomes penance. It's a new version of Roman Catholicism. You are forgiven when I determine you're forgiven. Well, how's that going to work? How much is enough? You see, one of the main differences between Christianity, godly wisdom, and worldly philosophy is that worldly philosophy, especially when it enters the church, is syncretistic. It seeks to, to mesh Christian concepts and terms with worldly wisdom. It doesn't work. It's like trying to bake dirt in your brownies and, and hoping it's going to come out okay. It does not work. When you add works to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, you, you negate it. We are saved by grace through faith, not as a result of works. And this is why Paul is so vehemently opposed to the Judaizers, the ones that followed him around from church to church. What were they doing? They didn't come and say, Jesus is not Lord. Jesus is not the Messiah. What did they say? Oh, yeah, Jesus is Lord. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross. But you also have to be circumcised. But you also have to observe feast days. But you also have to make sure you don't take so many steps on the Sabbath. Paul said, get the heck out of here. You are an affront to the gospel. And I won't stand for it. Because the gospel saves. And what you're luring people away with is something that sounds Christian, but in fact it damns. Syncretism, worldly philosophy, seeks to wed worldly wisdom with Christianity. Paul was so strong against this in Galatians chapter 1. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and wanting to distort the gospel of Christ. Look, wokeness Social justice, critical race theory, whatever you want to call it, is a different gospel because here are the two reasons. As compassionate as it sounds, and we're all for some of the same goals, but here's what I'm saying. Because Christ's work is neither sufficient and our identity is bound up in the old man, is bound up in self rather than Christ. Let me say that again. Wokeness is a different gospel because Christ's work is neither sufficient. It's not enough. And two, our identity is bound up in something other than Christ. It's bound up in ethnicity. It's bound up in, in, in social classes. It's bound up in, in gender or sexuality. It's bound up in a lot of other things, but it's not bound up in Christ. Christ is neither seated nor are we raised up with him. He is not our all in all. Now again, I'm going to encourage you, bear with me on this stuff. I've been looking at this for seven years now, and I'm sure it feels like I'm trying to nail jello to the wall. And so it's going to take a little bit of time, but what I want to get across today is that without the sufficiency of Christ and without our identity found in him, something that even sounds good, something that may even have good goals, but is done a worldly way, will not only detract from the gospel, but will cause us to drift from it. Did everyone hear what I just said? Even if some of the goals are noble, doing it the wrong way, the worldly way, will create a selfishness, 
will create a self-dependence, will create a self-identity, and will ultimately create a self-made religion that does not save. Go back to Hebrews. It's causing drifting. Okay? Just put it in real simple terms. Wokeness is causing Christians to drift and take their eye off the prize. I am the first one, side note here, I am the first one to absolutely, absolutely be passionate about pursuing different ethnicities, colors, and everyone for the gospel. But not because of the melanin in their skin. Not because of their background or where they came from. Not because of hardships of the haves or the have-nots. But because they're souls. And because they're within our geographic region. And so I draw a 10-mile circle and I say, who are we not reaching? And are we letting culture or language be a barrier to the gospel? If not, we need to knock those things out of the way. Why do you think I'm learning Spanish and getting so frustrated with myself? Because I want to reach Latinos for the gospel. Korean's going to be a little harder, okay? But I'm committed, okay? But it's not because of their culture. It's not because of the melanin in their skin. It's because they're souls. So don't tell me I don't care. I do care. Don't tell me I don't care about bringing someone out of poverty. Drew and I used to have a joke. I could make everyone a lot of money, except myself, okay? I am all for helping people learn a trade and lift them out of poverty. I'm all for that. But I want to teach them to fish, not hand them one. Wokeness is a different gospel because Christ's work is neither sufficient and our identity is bound up in the old man rather than Christ. Let me give you a couple of examples. Worldly religion places man as the judge and says you must earn forgiveness. Christianity says there is no condemnation because your sins were nailed to the cross. Worldly religion says your worth is in who you are as a race, gender, sexuality, or social status. Christianity says your worth is in Christ. Your identity is found in him. In fact, you're worthless without him. It doesn't mean that good works don't matter, as I mentioned. In fact, if, you, if we were back in Ephesians 2, you don't need to turn there. What is Ephesians 2.10? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. You've been left here to do the good works which God has planned beforehand in order that you might walk in them. And do you know what the best of all good works is? Giving people the gospel. But guess what? We also take care of people temporally. And we also give them bread and we give them water and we help them get a job and we love them and we open our homes, okay? But we don't take the main thing and replace it with something else that feels better but is a much, much distant second. You see, what is good, the good works that God has prepared beforehand must be determined by God and not by man. Goodness because only God is good. It must be determined by godly wisdom, not atheistic wisdom. I want to be very careful about this because, you know, you can write an entire sermon based upon polemic quotes and pulling things out of here. I'm going to give you two quotes by formerly extremely faithful expositors who went to the same seminary I went to, went through the same program, Tommy's program at Denton Bible. I want you to hear these things. The gospel is not good news without spiritual redemption and restoration, but the gospel is also not good news without emotional, economic, and social restoration as well. The gospel is not good news without emotional restoration, economic restoration, and social restoration. Well, I, you know, I guess Jesus didn't get that part of the gospel because he was a pretty poor carpenter, wasn't he? And a poor rabbi. What about Paul, a tent maker? Secondly, Christians can't be unified until we tear down the brick wall of injustice, meaning unequal wealth. Now look at verse 11 in Colossians 3. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek 
and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Let me be clear. Christ Christ has broken down the brick wall. And it has nothing to do with unequal wealth. Don't you dare let atheism rebuild that wall again in the church. This is not the posture of a Christian. The posture of a Christian is on your knees or holding your hands out. It is the 59 one another's. It is not demanding. And it is very important for us to remember, especially because I have a very young congregation for us to remember that the current wokeness philosophy has its foundation in socialism and its illegitimate daughter, cultural Marxism. Why do I say this? Because if you're not as old as I am, you won't remember that the 20th century gave us 100 million deaths at the hands of this philosophy, socialism. We always talk about fascism and Nazism that paled in comparison to the number of deaths that were brought about by Marxist philosophy. And that's what's creeping into the church. This is not an economic argument. This is an atheist compared to Christianity argument. Look, here's the reason why. I used to work with USAID. I have been to these countries that have seen the effects of socialism and Marxism. Ask our Venezuelan sisters, okay? Ask them what Venezuela is like today. Ask them how... They came to power. They came to power through social justice. Do you know that? Under the guise. I have seen the the, the very people, the very oppressed people that this system purports to help are the very ones that get hurt the most. They're the very ones that end up worse than they were before. James delivers it straight. In chapter 3, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. The wisdom is not that which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. Even Thomas Sowell, who's not a believer, says, Envy was considered to be one of the seven deadly sins before it became one of the most admired virtues under the new name social justice. These are not Christian attributes. Is there injustice in the world? Oh my goodness, there is. Do we as Christians need to stand in the gap? Yes, we do. That we do not need to divide the world into oppressed and oppressors and blame people or reward people based on the group identity. That is not Christian. And the worst part, it's not the desires of the have-nots. The worst part is the hypocritical, boastful pride of life of the haves who seek to look good through virtue signaling. Look, we have to realize that with any self-made religion, it finds itself in gratification of the temporal, the material, rather than the eternal. It finds its identity in self rather than Christ and finds only failure in dealing with sin. There is no heart change. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Thus, the driving force, we'll get into this in the coming weeks, in the passion for the pursuit of things below, the temporal, the material, the things which feed the flesh, are that it makes us feel good or it makes us look good. Both of which, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, are natural, earthly, demonic. You could put a Christian label all day long. You could talk about helping someone else all day long. But Satan's got a bait and switch going here. 
This is not an issue of poverty or wealth. Whatever earthly pursuit you're seeking will never satisfy. See also Hollywood. When you feed a monster a pride, she is never satisfied. Whether it is the pride of looking good or the pride of having things or the envy of having what is not yours or the envy of having to have more. So what's the answer? Look at verse 19, chapter 2. And not holding fast to the head. Not holding fast to the head. You see, the answer is seeking the things above. The answer is understanding, embracing, and holding fast to our identity in Christ. Seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. Matthew 6.33. Or as Paul writes in Philippians 3, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. Pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call in Jesus Christ. You've heard me say before, Howard Hendricks quoted this many times. There's two things God's going to take off this world. His word and his people. The most significant thing you can do in this life is to keep seeking the things above and pour his word into his people. Let me just begin the second one. We'll continue this next week. Why? Because your identity is in Christ, not yourself. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Is hidden with Christ in God. In simple terms, the old man has died. Satan no longer has dominion over you. You are no longer a slave to sin. Christ has broken the only power, the power of sin and death. And he crushed Satan's stronghold over us. Chapter 2, verse 15, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. We have a new union in Christ. We have a new identity. Our ethnicity, our gender, our social status, that is such a distant second, you can hardly see it in the rearview mirror. Because when people ask you, What's your identity? What do you identify as? A disciple of Jesus Christ. In union with Christ. Seated at the right hand in the heavenlies with Christ. Gee, Rod, I thought you were Irish. Yeah, I used to be. You know? I thought you were this, that, and the other. Yeah, vaguely I remember. That was the old man. That was the old life. That doesn't mean we don't bring wonderful things from our culture into this congregation. My goodness, we got the best potluck in 50 miles, right? But what it does mean is that our identity is not found in that. And what you win them with, you keep them with. Let me just make a side note here. If I start winning you with that earthly philosophy, and if I bring you into this congregation nursing a grudge, when's it going to get better? When are you going to forgive? When are you going to be able to have sweet fellowship with that person that hurt your family or whose daddy hurt your family? Or you had an experience with and they look like that person. It's never going to get better. What you win them with, you keep them with. And when you come into this church, do you know what we acknowledge when we give the gospel? We stood at the foot of the cross, naked, poor, and blind, and we deserved hell. But God, being rich in his mercy, with the great love with which he loved us, made us alive. You see the difference? Why? Let me just point out the obvious. Why would we waste time playing with these secondary and tertiary philosophies and identities when we have Jesus Christ? When we have eternal salvation? When we have an audience with the king? When we have the power above sin? Why would we go back like a dog to his own vomit? We're missing out. It's like C.S. Lewis used to say, he goes, we're, we're, we're so content with simple things. We, we, we like playing with mud pies in the streets when, when we could have a, a holiday at the beach. That's what it's like being in union with Christ. 
Well, let me leave us with one thing. I want to give us a glimpse of what sufficiency and identity produces that no other worldly philosophy can. Let your eyes fall down to chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Think about that posture, posture of a Christian. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. The difference between worldly philosophy, worldly wisdom, and godly wisdom Godly wisdom not only understands what has been done, who did it for them, but we're thankful. We're not demanding. We're thankful. We're not self-promoting. We're thankful. We're not building a self-made religion. We do everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Gracious Father, I pray that if I have been unduly offensive in any way or confusing, that you would forgive me, that you would strike it from our memory. Father, I pray that in the subsequent weeks, as we seek to understand the gospel more clearly, the depth of our union with Jesus Christ, our identity with him, the sufficiency of Christ, the person and work of our Lord and Savior, that it would become so clear, so deep, so worshipful, that, that really none of these other philosophies would really matter that much because the counterfeit is so easily recognizable in comparison to the genuine article. In Jesus' name, amen.